you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi there, Senecans. I'm Jeremy Goldcorn coming to you with a message that is endorsed not by Xi Jinping, nor by Donald Trump, nor by Hillary Clinton, but by my Seneca co-host Kaiser Gore. And we are urging you to go to the Google Play or Apple App Stores and download the SUP China app. While you're at it, please also leave us a review, preferably a glowing one. The information on the app is also available in the form of a daily email newsletter, which you can subscribe to at SUPChina.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. What you ask is SupChina? It's a clean, easy-to-read daily summary of all the major breaking news and important opinion pieces about China from the last day. If you like our show, then this is ideal for you. So go right now and subscribe to the daily email at SupChina.com or download the mobile phone app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by the illustrious Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy? Very well, Kaiser. Fall has come to Nashville, sadly for me, but most Nashvilleans are rejoicing at the uh, lovely temperate climate. Ah, good, good, good. And we're also joined from the bookworm in Beijing by the ever-delightful Ada Shen. How are you, Ada? Doing very well. Thanks, gentlemen. It's great to be here today. Um, I want to just give a shout out to Peter Goff and the great folks at the Bookworm Beijing for allowing us to set up um, our operations here. Kaiser, you and Jeremy are going to be back in Beijing in February, right? Uh, yeah, if all goes as planned, uh, we're going to be doing a live taping there at the Bookworm, where you are right now, inshallah. Details anon for all of you Beijing-based listeners. Uh, maybe, you know, we can even do more than one. Anyway, we are delighted to be joined today by the blogger Ma Tianjie, who made his debut on our show back in April in one of the last shows that we did while we were still at Pop-Up Chinese before coming over to SupChina. If you haven't heard that show, please see the podcast page for a link and make sure to check it out because personally, I think it's one of our best. Uh, you can hear what inspired Tianjie to start his blog, publicopinion.com. Find out why his English is so damn good, and explore the origins of the word "diaosi," which is a whole subculture in China that is, I think, quite crucial to understanding online public opinion in China today. In addition to writing the blog publicopinion.com, Martin Jia also works for the incomparable China Dialogue, which offers reporting and analysis on Chinese environmental issues in a fully bilingual format. And it was founded by Isabel Hilton, who's also been a guest on the show. So, Martin Jia, welcome back to Seneca, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, with, at uh, a rather late hour in Beijing. Thank you for having me on the show again. I mean, it's always a pleasure to have you on with us on Seneca because your writings offer such terrific analysis of the actual conversations that Chinese people are having over the issues of the day, and 
And that analysis, I think, often illuminates the really fascinating lines of fracture that we might not otherwise see. Um, That is certainly the case with the three most recent posts that you've written, which are the ones that we want to focus on today. Uh, The first was about a spate of incidents over the summer uh, provoking the wrath of nationalists online. Uh, The second was about a celebrity divorce case that set off a huge online debate with people taking very, very different positions about the actor Wang Baoqiang and his decision to publicly shame his wife of seven years for having an affair with her agent. And the third uh, was about the shocking murder-suicide that was carried out against four young children in rural Gansu province by an impoverished mother. All right, so let's let's take these in order, okay? So maybe starting with the the first piece that you did called Patriotic July, which uh, was about online nationalism. So online nationalism in China is not a new thing, and it's not really that surprising that it would have taken a fever pitch right after the Hague Commission's decision on the South China Seas. But what was interesting here is how that all accumulated in that month, uh, how it intersected with. Um, a public protest against KFC. KFC became a target. And also the actress Zhao Wei became a target as well in her film. Um, and so uh, can you maybe explain to us how these things intersected in that month? Sure. Uh, so I think this episode or these multiple episodes actually are connected loosely. But I think the, the South China Sea ruling actually provided the bridge between the the whole Zhao Wei saga and then the KFC protests because at the beginning it was uh, as I wrote in my blog it's just regular business for a small community uh, online who is sort of developing this strategy of targeting celebrities right so I think over the past uh, half a year there have been several cases where show business celebrities fell victim to this kind of online attacking on sensitive issues such as Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong democracy movements and things like that. And it seems to me that this small community has has sort of perfected this tactic uh, as a way of trying to attack, attract attention mm. uh, and sort of build on uh, these momentums, right? Because I think those celebrities tend to be easy targets. They they often, they, they don't fight back. Uh, in, in the case, especially, I think, of uh, Zhou Ziyu, mm-hmm. who's this Taiwanese actress um, who was attacked by waving the Taiwanese uh, flag and things like that. We talked about that well, last well, gosh, time. Yeah. She, was, she was like, what, like 16 years old? 16, yeah. So right. she was bullied, right, basically yeah. uh, online, and she, in the end, had to apologize with a video. So I think these celebrities, celebrities they, they tend to be very perfect targets for this kind of bullying because they, they don't talk back. They are not eloquent about any like political thoughts and things like that and their expression is often sometimes accidental uh, and not intentional so i think this community has sort of de- developed this tactic of targeting these uh fishes and 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 try to collect uh, political capital uh, out of this kind of movements so i think the Zhao Wei case is just another example of they targeting one of the actors in her film who is Dai Li Ren right this taiwanese actor and they dug out a lot of details of him participating in so-called taiwanese uh, independence activities uh, which is of course a political taboo in mainland china and they sort of jump on it to to build on this kind of energy for the movement. But I think what makes this different this time is that suddenly there's a a whole new narrative being added into this kind of activity, which is this Mm anti-capitalist narrative suddenly being injected into the whole story because they 
suspected that uh, Zhao Wei was behind this deleting of a post, right, by the Communist Youth League, who in the past one year also has been very active in supporting this kind of online nationalism, especially expressed by the youth, right? So when there was a suspicion that that Zhao Wei asked some of her friends to delete a piece that was damaging to her, then this whole thing sort of fermented into a, a different story, which is capitalists controlling freedom of expression online, right? Because they believe that it's somehow linked with Jack Ma, who has this, uh, I think, some kind of friendship uh, with Zhao Wei, the, the actress. So I think from that moment on, the, the whole thing becomes quite different because it, it then has this cl- class uh, struggle kind of flavor, right? It, in hmm, the beginning... Hmm. It was about, okay, Taiwan is part of China. You should apologize because you are supporting Taiwan independence. But then all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's becoming, um, sort of anti-Jack Ma, anti-capitalists, right? Anti, uh, sort of uh, criticizing like this media control by capitalism. Anti-elite. Anti-cronyism. Anti-elites, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Which I is think- a, a little reminiscent of, uh, things that are going on elsewhere in the world, in Europe and, and here in the United States. Uh, where Europeans and Americans seem to be as nationalistic as ever. And there's a strong flavor, if not of anti-capitalism, at least of uh, a a tremendous degree of resentment against globalization and um, uh, perhaps uh, what one might call the neoliberal uh, world order. Um, Martin Jia, do you see a connection here? Well, I don't think in this particular case there is a, a, a connection because I think in this case it's more paranoid. Right, paranoia. But uh, if you're talking about a broader connection, I, I do see in, in the past uh, events that there is a connection between this kind of anti-liberal and anti-political correctness uh, in the West and um, some of the, the kind of opinions in China. Uh, nowadays, there is a, a new sort of stigma, I think, in China, in the, in the Chinese internet, which is called Bai Zuo, right? Bai means white, Zuo means liberals, right? White liberals. And I think there is a very active online sort of community that's, that is against white liberal ideas, right? So if you're talking about connections in this dimension, I think there is. But I think in this particular case, against like Jack Ma controlling Chinese media and things like that, I, I think it's more paranoid, at least to me. Mm, I see. Well, I mean, this this whole mantle of patriotism is something that everyone seems to be wrestling for. So, you know, Hu Xijin of the Global Times wants to own that. Jack Ma wants to own that. Some people are, are very alarmed at seeing patriotism or, or nationalism slip into just this kind of anti-foreignism and xenophobia, including, you know, Hu Xijin. Uh, you know, the way that things like KFC, uh, the, the whole boycott against KFC, that, that they represent this kind of boxer mentality. So on the one hand, you have these kind of typical public intellectuals who are you know, quite liberal and committed to, well, the Baizuo, maybe this cosmopolitan vision of China, and are generally very scornful of nationalism. On the other hand, you have these really trollish, thin-skinned guys who, and women too, as we'll talk about, but you also have these people who are kind of caught in the middle, who seem to have a lot of attachment to the idea of Chinese sovereignty, uh, who are very behind Chinese territorial claims, but they're not going to go out and burn Japanese cars or boycott foreign fast food either. I, I mean, I feel like these people occupy a kind of rapidly eroding middle ground. What, what's your take on that? Indeed. I think this uh, 
I think this whole South China Sea episode and and the KFC incidents afterwards just shows the shifting grounds under the word patriotism, right? Because everybody is trying to define what they call patriotism,、uh, and I think the the old established conservatives the, they they are trying to defend something or they they want to maintain the the good name of patriotism, right? By trying to purge. The part that that is fully stigmatized, which is this anti-KFC, anti-Japanese cars, right? This kind of things, because、right. I think the last time this happened, it was I think twenty two thousand twelve. Yeah, twenty、right. twelve, where there was this tragedy of、uh, a protester basically smashing the head of a Toyota owner, right, in Xi'an. Who happened also to be a lower middle class person, right? And with, with a bicycle lock, right? He smashed his head with a, a big, heavy metal bicycle lock. I seem to remember.、Right. Yes, indeed.、Um, so I, I think in in that case, I think it sealed the image of of the the, the so called street patriots, right? They are、um, they are seen by a majority of Chinese as. Being irrational and、uh, unreasonable and violent, so I think in in this case of the the South China Sea ruling、uh, case, even though I think on the surface when you see the, the narratives from the the state media and things like that, it, it's still very like the the wording is still very strong,、uh, vituperative. But on the other hand, they are very eager to sever right this brand of patriotism from street protests.、Um, that's why. As soon as the KFC protests happened, there's a very quick movement、uh, on the official side to criticize the, the movement and and to sort of distance themselves from it,、uh, even saying that those protesters were actually gongzhis、uh, in disguise. Right? They want to. <laughs>、right. They want to. False flag. <laughs> yes, false flag.、Um, so it's it's a very interesting thing to see how the the word、uh, patriotism is being. Defended and 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 redefined on trying to,、uh, on the one hand,、uh, you you still see this kind of strong languages old story on the surface, but on the on the, on the other hand, they want to install this、uh, new civility right in in the in the concept. What is your sense then of the government being able to kind of keep a lid on this? I mean, that's a very fine line. It seems like they're trying to balance. Um, between sort of fanning the flames and directing a, a certain nationalist sentiment and being quite hard edged about it, and on the other hand, trying to control who gets to express it, I guess. I mean, what is your sense of how they're going to continue well, to manage this? I think this is a fine line, and and from this July, you can see that some of the things are 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 just unexpected, right?、Mm. I don't think. From the beginning, there is an intention of、uh, from the top to to mobilize a, a street movement, as、right. they did probably back in two thousand five or twenty twelve. I think this time, if you look at the official communications from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or from the president himself, they are pretty restrained in their language,、mm. uh, in their reaction to the to the ruling. So I think some of the Eruption of patriotism, especially on the street, is totally unexpected to to them. That's why、um, they rushed to, to sort of quench this、mm. this fire on the street. So it it did seem to me that there is a, a risk of patriotism getting out of hand at some point. And there is a theory, I think,、uh, on the internet that this time it's the establishment, it's the conservative estab- establishment who is who overplay their hand. Right,、mm. so 
they saw an opening, which is the ruling.、Mm. Um, they read it as the, that、uh, it's a chance to sort of reestablish this patriotism、um, narrative, but they they overdid it. And then there's this unexpected protest on the street, and they they have to backtrack to some extent. Yeah.、Mm. Tianjie, what can you tell us about the so-called little pink types, the xiao fen hong? Is this really a thing, or, or are these flag-waving fan girls something that the media in China has basically created? Well, I think this is、uh, this is related a lot to the kind of subculture, the patriotic subculture that I wrote about back in February, I think. Right, we talked about that. Yeah, this this is a group of I think mainly、uh, youth patriots online. Which、uh, I think they either they self-organized or they were cultivated、uh, into this kind of online subculture, which is a weird combination of、uh, sort of millennial、uh, subculture with with old school Chinese patriotism, right? So they use like cartoonish、uh, kind of language to describe international relationships and things like that. So this whole interesting phenomenon on the Chinese internet, and I think this. This group of youth, they differentiate themselves from establishment conservatives, right? Like Hu Xijing, right? They, they don't use, they don't generally use party language. They, they talk the language of the of the millennials, but their attitude and their approach and and their stance is is strongly like patriotic. That's why they would like jump over the Great Firewall to troll on Facebook and things like、mm. that, right? They they they、uh, harness the Twenty-first century technology, but they they are their 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 stance is still very old school patriotism. Basically, that's why they are called <laughs> Xiao Fen Hong, little pink, right? So they are red, but they are like lightly red, right? <laughs> lightly so, red, <laughs> yeah, red light, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> red light. That's such a great name, such yeah, a perfect、awesome. name for.、Them. Um, let's talk now maybe about the next、uh, piece that you wrote about Wang Baoqiang and Mao Rong. Um, his now ex-wife, I guess that's、mm. in progress. So, can you first give us a quick summary of who he is and、uh, how he's regarded by the Chinese public and and his public persona, and also tell us a little bit about what happened with his wife and and the affair? Sure.、Um, so, Wang Baoqiang is a very famous actor. Many of the Chinese viewers probably know him through the movie "The World Without World Thieves." Without thieves. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, Tianxia Wuzhi. By the director Feng Xiaogang, and in that movie, he played the role of Shaker, right? This dumb rude, right?、Uh, mm. It's a very naive farmer, right? A peasant on the train, and everybody was trying to like steal his money, right? And he trusted everybody, even even though he he was surrounded by world class thieves, right? <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a great movie, and and I think. So Wang Baoqiang make the the role very convincing for a lot of Chinese, and he is remembered for this kind of role. So in 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 his later movies, he all often plays this kind of dumb,、uh, naive, but、uh, well intentioned,、uh, good hearted this kind of、uh, roles. And、uh, his public image is quite consistent is with his、uh, image in in those movies. And he is from the countryside, right? He is. He, he's not an urbanite. Right? No, no. He really is. He really is from like、uh, from really, really humble rural origins. And when、yeah. he was a kid, he he went to、uh, you know Shaolin Si, 
and he sort of became famous that way. I think he, he started making films. I think I saw him first in Mangjing, in Blind Shaft, yeah. which was an indep- an excellent independent film. But yeah, yeah, he really is like from, from the countryside. Yes, he's from a, s- a small town uh, in Hebei called Xingtai and from a very poor family. So he's, uh, he's definitely a, a sort of an embodiment of the the countryside China, right? A, a poor person from a very modest route and made his way into the show business and became very successful. So when he announced that he is divorcing his wife because of her affair with his own agent, I think there is a genuine reaction from the Chinese internet of fury, right? Because people like naturally sided with Wang Baoqiang because of his, yeah, yeah his uh, image, yeah. At first they did, right? I mean, but public opinion seems to have divided a bit on that issue. I mean, at, at what point did people actually start to think that the attacks that were being made on Ma Rong and on her agent with whom she was having the effort had actually started to go too far? And and where was this critique actually coming from? So I think the the attack on Ma Rong, I think, went pretty unreasonable after that people start to uh, attack her friends, right? So there are incidents where people that Ma Rong followed on Weibo, but who actually didn't know Ma Rong, being attacked by the, the netizens, um, by, by the right. internet uh, uh, people, uh, just because they have this very weak association with Ma Rong, and they were trolled uh, like hell by those uh, supposedly Wang Baoqiang supporters. And from, from that moment on, I think there are commentators and, and, and people on the internet who start to question the integrity of, of Wang Baoqiang posing this whole thing on the internet and, and how much sort of hurt this may bring to Marong and all, all the sort of friends and, and relatives uh, around those people. And then after that, I think there is a whole lot of intellectualizing of this whole <laughs> thing. For one thing, I think I was one of my readers, I think on, on the blog, he, he was quite frustrated by I actually writing this blog because he thinks uh, I'm adding on to this mm. over intellectualizing. Oh, he's going to love our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> over intellectualizing of this whole, uh, for him, it's a nonsense, which I can also relate to. But um, I <laughs> well, think that. No, so, well, th- I, I think that the, it's very interesting because <laughs> this reaction really highlights these lines of division. Once again, there you see this, this split between the kind of online masses and other you know, more socially conservative, maybe less cosmopolitan people on the one hand, and on the other hand, the urban cosmopolitan elite. You know, again, you know, the the the, the white left. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in that cosmopolitan the, elite, I mean, there's a there was a feminist critique about this too, which is very understandable. You know, if uh, if it was the other way around, if it was a husband cheating on his wife, uh, there probably would have been much less of a fuss about it, right? Yeah, absolutely, double standard, right? Yeah, I think the the feminist critique of this affair is is very legit mm. um because I think this is totally true that the society treats women differently in this situation uh compared to when it treats men and I think the feminist uh community uh, on the Chinese internet is one of the successful example of making use of this kind of controversies to advance the the kind of uh, agenda and also educate the public about how uh, women should be treated in those cases. I think I, I've also touched on this on my Weibo, where they are actually also good at using this kind of celebrity controversies to 
help promote a feminist message. And, and I think one, they are what probably one of the most effective activists on the Chinese internet of making use of public opinion to disseminate their own message. So if anything positive come out of this whole affair, I think the feminist message is probably one of them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I see parallels to similar debates that have erupted in the United States, uh, where we have social or sexual conservatism that also kind of aligns with populist mentality. Do you think it's basically the case in China that you find the same kind of clustering of values, like a, the sort of clustering of values that we see in the United States? I would say there, from what I see, I think there probably is a reclustering of values, right? Because if mm. you, if you remember back in 2012, when the internet is, especially public opinion was still pretty much dominated uh, and swayed by very big uh, internet figures like Han mm. Han, right? Mm. Mm. Who has tens of millions of followers. And back then he was writing like grand pieces like, on revolution mm. or like, on democracy, yeah, that right? essay. yeah. Mm. on freedom, yeah, this kind of big themes and and people did and became a huge debate and things like that. Mm. And there is a whole lot of back then the whole lot of uh, public intellectuals, right, who holds very standard this kind of liberal ideas, right, who cares about the poor, uh, people like Yu Jianrong, right, who helps the uh, rural uh, population. There are people who are concerned with. The, the downtrodden uh, classes of the society and, and this, they hold this kind of quite standard liberal uh, values. But then this whole group was sort of subdued and, and wiped out, right? Mm. Uh, in the crackdown starting from 2013. And nowadays. The big on, V crackdown, right? Yeah, right. the big V crackdown. So nowadays on, on Weibo, you almost cannot find all these big Vs anymore, right? Mm. The, the real estate tycoons, they were gone, right? Ren Zhichang, mm-hmm. Pan Shi, they are long gone. Mm-hmm. Han Han was basically silent. All of those, uh, old, like, like, traditional liberals, they were gone. So there's, I think there's a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. And now I think, uh, especially on a platform like Weibo, you, it's, it's more diverse, I would say, mm-hmm. compared to three, four years ago. But there is this reclustering going on. And for example, this whole movement against Baizuo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, white liberals coming from all d- different corners, right? Of the internet. Like there are military fans, right? Who don't necessarily agree with the state, but they are very militant, right? And, and they are jingoistic and, and they don't like the whole, for example, they, they don't like how Merkel deals with the refugees, mm. right? And they are very critical of, of how the Europeans dealt with the refugees, uh, because they see it as weak, um, white liberal values, right? And you have people who would uh, sympathize with the police, mm. right? Instead of the victim, because they want to install more law and order in the society. They feel that the society is, is in disorder. And there should be more uh, law and order and enforcement. Is this, is this reminding you of anyone, Ada? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Tianjie, can we move on to the third story we wanted to talk to you about, which is the tragic murder-suicide uh, that happened in Gansu, where mm. uh, Yang Gailan, a mother of four children, killed them 
and then uh, killed herself. And some days later, the father learned about his family's fate and, and killed himself. And um, I'd like to just say that, I mean, this is not a particularly Chinese problem. Uh, in South Africa, in the dying days of apartheid in the early years of the, the ANC government, there was a spate of, of similar family suicides. Um, uh, but anyway, can you give us a, a quick summary of what happened here in this this horrible tragedy and, and how it's being discussed in China? Sure. I think based on the sort of details uh, found out by the Chinese media, so basically this young guy, Lan, who is only 28, she had four children, uh, all of them very young. So the, the, the oldest children was only six, right? And... She was from a very poor family living with her father and her grandmother. And her husband was sort of adopted, right, from outside the village. So in, in the Chinese countryside, uh, for a man to be adopted as a husband, it, it means that he is from really, really low, um, social class, even by the standard of the Chinese countryside, right? Because right, because. Ordinarily, Chinese society is very patrilocal rather than matrilocal, right? Yes, yes. So you can see, right, this is, and, and they're from Gansu province, uh, and, and, and a corner of Gansu province, which is probably one of the poorest corners yeah. of the country in the far west. Mm. So they're, they're in this situation, and there are, I think, many factors that probably contributed to the tragedy. Um, some of them related to poverty, definitely. Uh, some of them related to village politics, probably because there was um, a, a media report saying that the, the the sort of subsidy, the poverty subsidy, the government used to gave to the family was cancelled because the villagers voted that they are they were not um, poor enough to receive wow. the funding uh, because it, in the countryside they still have this rural democracy, so called, uh, that they the, the villagers would vote to allocate this kind of poverty alleviation funding uh, among themselves. On the, on the one hand, it actually prevents, to some extent, uh, the officials from like arbitrarily uh, mm. assigning those funding. But on the other hand, it also didn't uh, bode well with those members who, for example, don't talk that much and sure. do, don't know how to build a relationship with their fellow villagers, right? And Yangalan's popularity family, contest. Yes, and Yangalan's yeah. family was probably one of the families who didn't have a good relationship with with their neighbors. So their poverty funding was stripped uh, <laughs> two years ago. And then there is also family politics, right? So I think there are there were details about her grandmother being a very harsh right. uh, kind of woman which was a, a huge sort of psychological stress on her life so i think there are a multitude of factors that contribute to the misery yeah. of young gailan and at one day she probably decided that oh and, and there was also some indication of mental health issues but there was yeah. never evidence of that right so at one day she just decided that uh, that's the end of it and she's bringing all her children with her and we had this very tragic moment on August 26 and and how is this actually being debated now in in China i mean are are there sides forming in this as well i think this case was uh, was an example of how only looking at for example social media or even like mainstream media uh, doesn't help that much to understand a case like this, right? Because 
the 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 analysis you tend to get are from a very urban point of view, right? So people take, for example, a very materialistic view of it, and they they debate how poor she actually is, right? Yeah, and acting as if uh, like material is sort of the dominating factor contributing to her death uh, and this tragedy. There is also this uh, this post on We WeChat, which makes it viral uh, on the internet, which basically takes the the stance of class mobility and use the the Yang Lan case to criticize this the whole society of lacking upward mobility, even though it might be true. But again, uh, I don't feel that it adequately explains or accounts for the tragedy or the situation of this particular case. So I think the the whole field was dominated by a, a very urban kind of discussion, naturally because those who are airing this kind of views uh, are tend to be from a urban uh, educated background. Um, the best, right? And I I, I thought yeah. that was a very interesting thing that you did there is that you you raised this to yet another very interesting level of discussion, as you say, just on whether the presumably very urban Chinese commentators are in any position at all to really interpret the event in its own kind of rural agrarian context. You quote one person lamenting that in a public sphere that's dominated by an urban discourse, the countryside cannot articulate itself. And th there are no farmers' representatives, no peasant intellectuals, no rural women's advocates who are emerging to help make sense of Yang's destruction of her entire family. Uh, can you elaborate on that a bit? I mean, but, but the, the, there were people, were, were there not? I mean, you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Yu Jianrong, who was a very, very prominent intellectual who cared a great deal about the plight of the impoverished, and though he himself may be kind of a, a typical uh, public intellectual in many ways. Where are they now? I mean, why this lack of people who are speaking up about the plight of the impoverished in, in rural parts of China. Yeah, I don't know, for example, where Yu Jianrong goes. He just, uh, I think after that wave of purge, a lot of so-called public intellectuals like him just uh, decided that they they don't speak that much more uh, on the internet. So you don't, you don't see much voice or discussion from the point of view of uh, a rural, from a rural person's point of view. And I think, even though I, I'm sure, I think there are scholars, ac academians, who study uh, this kind of phenomenon because there, there's a whole bunch of literature, right, on uh, female suicide rates in the countryside of China. There's a whole bunch of studies uh, by the WHO, for example, in that area. But it seems to me that none of this actually surfaced in a debate like this. So when the discussion was really heated on on the internet, the the best I think the online commentators can do is to leave some space for interpretation, right? Mm, there are mm. people who are more self-aware um, and they're less assertive of their of their own judgments. And they, I think it's these people who remind us that actually the, the dominant voices on, on the Chinese internet today probably couldn't fully make sense uh, of this case. And I, I, and I think right. this is sort of the, the best, best you can find on, on the internet today, right? There's some kind of self-aware and restraint but to go a step further and, and provide uh, the kind of interpretation that, that is relate relatable and, and, and also makes sense uh, in this case, probably you, you need to actually dig into literature or, or dig into uh, actual um, studies instead of relying on the, the internet uh, in this particular the case. The chattering classes. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Matthew and Jed, I, this has been absolutely wonderful, and I, I hope our listeners have gotten half as much out of it as, as, as I have. I think this, this gives people a sense for the kind of penetrating insights that you offer on the blog, uh, chublicopinion.com. If you're not already reading it, I cannot recommend it enough. And I hope you, know, you find time uh, in your work at China Dialogue to continue writing this on the Sunday afternoons because it's just such a pleasure to, to read and always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we want you to come back often. And, Thank you uh, so we much. Hope you also, oh, God. I mean, our <laughs> pleasure. Absolutely. So we hope you'll stick around and make a recommendation for our listeners, okay? Sure. Oh, great. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I want to remind everyone also to uh, leave us a positive review, hopefully, on Apple, on the iTunes store there. Uh, And with that, let's move on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us? I'd like to recommend a device to make coffee. Obviously, this is not a China recommendation. It's called an AeroPress. And I first heard about it from you, Kaiser. And at the Uh. time, I assumed it was some $1,000 yuppie device only (laughs) purchased by... uh, uh, you know, overcompensated executives at tech companies. Um, like me. Like no. you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was delighted to find that it costs $30 or $29 something. It was designed by, uh, I think he's an engineering professor at Stanford. And it's basically a combination of a French press and a syringe. And it takes, you know, like less than a minute once you have boiling water to make a really good cup of coffee that is better than most uh, espresso machines. Uh, And if you are a coffee addict, it's really a wonderful device. It's called the AeroPress. Got one right here next to me at the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham. And I've got two of them at home. You're going to have lots of AeroPress coffee while you're out here. And I've got Good. one at home as well. <laughs> God, yeah, they're they're the best. Oh, so I mean, I, I'm just, just like some idiot rules. who found out about this last <laughs> week. Okay, well. yes, basically. <laughs> I, I I've been recommending that widely to people. Excellent, excellent recommendation. AeroPress, yes, absolutely. Oh, by the way, they have knockoff ones on Taobao in China. Not that I would, you know, recommend that. But Not just at saying, all. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also, one one thing that you can get in China, which I haven't seen for sale here, is a little metal disc filter instead yeah. of the paper filters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, they're they're amazing. They're they're really great. You know, they give just as much resistance, so you're making just as good of a cup of coffee. Uh, rinse it off, and you know you don't need to waste the paper. I think we need to go f- to them for a sponsorship now. <laughs> <laughs> Ada, you, you're up next. Yes. Okay. So in 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 light of the season in which we are doing this taping, and under the assumption that maybe this podcast drops before November fourth, my recommendation is fact check websites. Um, you know, pretty much any of them. So for people who are uh, making decisions about how they're going to vote in the U.S. presidential election. Um, This is one presidential election that affects everybody on the planet. So please uh, vote wisely. So that's my recommendation. Fact check websites. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Actually, yeah. We we, we just watched the debate last night here in in the States and uh, this morning or 
was it this morning? Yeah, yeah, this morning there in Beijing, the first debate. And I, I loved that NPR provided a really great sort of near real time fact check. Uh, it was it was quite good. Anyway, Martin Jie, you are up. What's your recommendation for us? Okay, I'm going to recommend a novel. I'm not sure um, if people have recommended it before because it's I think it's published in 2013 or 2014. Uh, it's called Fan Hua, which is written by a Shanghai-based uh, writer called Jing Yucheng, and I think this is one of the best novels about Shanghai that I've ever that I've ever read before. Wow. Uh, as as someone from Shanghai, and he actually wrote it in a distinctively Shanghai way because he modified the language to reflect the Shanghainese dialect, but you can still read it if you can read Chinese, right? So it's a very unique way of writing uh, the story. If there's any publishers uh, listening to this, uh, I would encourage you to seek it out and see if you want to translate it into English. I don't know whether if it's translated or not, but. It's one of the greatest novels that is set in post 1945 mm. Shanghai, and it, it it's it has it spans um, for 40 years, right? It's, it's a really great novel that I would call the epic of my parents' generation because it oh, basically wow. writes wow. the the Shanghai youth, right, of of uh, the 1950s and how they grew up, um, mm. and. There's uh, uh, many like very lively roles uh, in the novel and great stories. So I, I would recommend this to any reader of uh, Chinese language. And if you can seek it out and and you can appreciate the Shanghai flavor, and you definitely want to read that. Outstanding. Yeah, excellent. I am going to recommend a novel as well. Uh, not long ago, I was on Facebook enthusing as I am wont to do, uh, about a <laughs> novel that I had read called The Knicks, which I, Nathan Hill, I just recommended it a couple of weeks ago on this podcast. Um, and a high school classmate of mine named Lisa Gibbs hopped on, and I, I, I talked about how the, the novel reminded me of, and then I rattled off a list of, 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 you know, writers who it reminded me of, and they all happened to be male. And she said, well, don't you read any female writers? I said, well, yes, I do. But, you know, the, their works don't remind me of this. And so somebody s- said, ah, here's someone who you'll love and uh, who will remind you of, of this particular style of writing, you know, kind of literary fiction, really great literary fiction. And somebody I'd been meaning to read for a long time, Donna Tart. Uh, she, she wrote The Secret History and – her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel from a couple of years ago was *The Goldfinch*, which I'm in the you know maybe a quarter of the way through right now, and it's just terrific. She is just such a gifted writer. So yeah, can't recommend it highly enough. *The Goldfinch*. Okay, so that's a wrap. Thanks once again, Martinez, for taking the time to join us. My great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, Ada, it was just you know wonderful to have you back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Jeremy, as always, and I'm looking forward to see you, seeing you here in, in North Carolina later today, man. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, put on some clothes and then go to the airport and fly up there. <laughs> I will fetch you at the airport. <laughs> Too much <Old> information. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain advantages to the podcasting medium. <laughs> oh, no, let's please not go there. Oh, my goodness. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anna Cheng, Amadeo Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. And very special thanks to our friends from the Bookworm in Beijing, 
uh, drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.